Hello everyone, it's December 8th, 2020. This week it's all about rocks in space, that we then bring back to Earth. Chang'e 5 has some moon rocks, and Hayabusa 2 has some asteroid rocks, which I guess were turned into meteors and then meteorites once they landed. Is that how that works? Anyway, lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 288 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. So just had a SpaceX launch just as we were preparing for the show. Watched a little bit of that. It has become very routine. Like I just kind of clicked it on, watched for five minutes and everything went well. Then I just got back to show notes. So (laughs) I don't know what what else is big in the news. Uh, Oh, except for the utter destruction of the Arecibo Space Telescope. Yeah. Which was crazy. Um, did, Did you see the drone footage? Yeah. Yeah, I saw the footage, which is insane that there was a drone. So this is like a big coincidence, right? That it was. Well, I have a theory about that because if you watch that drone footage, so they'd been doing monitoring, right, of the cables, Mm -hmm. as you can imagine, but it happening to to be looking exactly there. But even when the foot, before the footage starts, it looks like the cable's a bit frayed. Yeah. Right? Because it's a bundle of smaller ones. And so maybe, you know, I mean, it was good timing, but it wasn't like amazing timing yeah i I think we had seen some of that fraying previously and and i think what it just comes down to is they had drones in the air for you know a large portion of the time anyway and this was a high interest target and so i mean yeah it's it's luck but i don't think there was that much luck involved i think they knew Mm -hmm. what to look at because what i my question that i mean i i also hadn't heard one way or another but if you watch that footage it looks like that's where there could be two more at least one more slot where another cable should be so that clearly was one of the towers where at least one cable was lost and i'm not sure if both of them were lost from the same tower yeah um because it it looks like there could be two there if you if you watch it on the right end it looks like there's four there's certainly four slots and potentially a fifth one and then but there's only three cables and then you start seeing them go one two three in the footage. There was a cable that had already snapped and because that was shown there, yes. Because if you remember, there was a cable that snapped, what was it, last month? And, you know, that was a tower. Yeah, one over the summer snapped. and then one just, yeah, weeks ago, about a month ago. The cables for the catwalk, do those come from a different point or is it one of those three towers? I, I tend to think that they are one. I mean, I, I think that they're um, hooked up to the same tower because they were worried about those catwalks falling if they had people like technicians out on them. And at one point they were talking about using harnesses to, to hook technicians up to a helicopter to keep them, to keep them safe. But, but I, I was uh, chatting with a, an Apple support rep this week. Um, I accidentally put my, my AirPods in the wash. Uh oh. <laughs> oh, <laughs> had, had to get them replaced. Uh, 30, 35 bucks to replace two AirPods. It's not bad. Yeah. I didn't even know you could do that. That's impressive. I'll have to remember that. Well, yeah, it's, it's Apple Care Plus covers accidental damage, I think up to twice oh, okay. a year or something like that. But, uh, they had originally, I don't want to get too involved, but basically they originally sent me two left AirPods. And so I had to get back and, Ask them to <laughs> give me a right one. And so, uh, it's kind of a weird situation. So the rep that I was talking to was like, okay, let me, I'm not sure about this one part. Let me go double check. Uh, hang on. And he kind of puts me on a uh, text chat hold and he, he comes back. He's like, yeah, I'm really glad I checked because I would have gotten this wrong. Uh, this would have been the, you know, another <laughs> catastrophe related to this <laughs> ticket. And I was like, oh yeah, no Arecibo for you. And he's like, you're really going to make me go look that up, aren't you? And so I sent him uh, uh that footage and he's like, 
holy crap. Like he didn't even know what Arecibo was at that point. And so we just kind of sat there talking about Arecibo and why it's important and, you know, how we've been watching it slowly fall apart over the last couple of months. And I I love talking to people as a space nerd, like to watch people (laughs) like have that first reaction that, you know, we don't get, you know, we, we, we get some surprises, but we've already, you know, mostly discovered everything that's that's there to get that big first look gasp at so i guess uh we got to talk about a little bit of rock collecting uh for this episode yeah we have multiple stories about rocks in space coming back to earth (laughs) yeah uh, first up is uh, Chang'e Five's lunar sampling. So I guess as of right now, I don't know the status, but so far things look like they're they're you know going well. And this was uh, the lunar sample return mission that launched on November twenty third. Launched on November twenty third. It entered lunar orbit on November twenty eighth. The um, lander and ascent vehicle touched down on December 1st. Um, the ascent vehicle just did the rendezvous, the ascent and rendezvous yesterday, um, as we're recording this on December 5th. Um, and then it, it's going to be in orbit for a little bit before its return window, I believe. The reentry is going to be, what do they call it? Like a stone skipping type of a method. <laughs> I forget what I had read. Okay. But, so um, they're, they're going to decelerate on the first pass and then reenter on the second. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Like, like they're just going to shed some velocity, kind of like bouncing off the atmosphere. But yeah, very impressive. I've seen some videos, the lifting off from the surface, the camera that was on the descent stage, kind of, you know, taking that shot. That was very cool to look at. I have to say, I don't know quite what the mechanism is, but um, it looks like it lifts off, you know, a few feet first before the engines kick on. Do they have, is there smaller thrusters or is there some sort of a spring mechanism? Since I know this thing probably doesn't weigh too much on the moon, they can maybe just get it clear of the surface because it looks like that that's what it did before it turned on. Sam in the chat says it's spring loaded. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of what it looked like, but, uh. Since this is obviously a Chinese mission, we don't have all the information in the world, but <laughs> I guess as things happen successfully, that information and even footage is released. I mean, for, for a Chinese, <laughs> Colin says, so the first stage is a spring. Yeah, this is the trampoline method. They've actually been fairly uh, open, and I, I think it's it's really a prestige kind of thing, um, but yep. they you know really show an awful lot of... Um, a lot of the process. And actually, I just looked it up. They've actually already jettisoned the ascent stage as well. Um, so they did the, tri- the, the sample transfer and then jettisoned the ascent stage. Um, so that, that means that the samples are as safe as they're ever going to be. You know, it's much safer to have them mm-hmm. in orbit around the moon than on the surface of the moon. Just cause you, you know, less delta V to get it home. Pretty darn cool to actually do like, um, a canister transfer in orbit, like, eh, it, it's pretty slick. Yeah. It's just the canister transfer, as you said. So, but that like requires quote unquote, some docking maneuvers. Um, no, uh, no actual docking maneuvers. Yes. They dock and then they have, um, sort of a slide mechanism that allows okay. the payload transfer and then they undock. Yeah. Okay. Because this is what I wasn't clear on is exactly how that happens. Um, I do know that a representative said that there is an error range of less than five centimeters. So this is something, and I don't know if this was, well, no, this could not have been manually done. I don't think, or perhaps, but no, uh, I think I read that it was, it was done autonomously. 
Even that couple seconds of time delay is not something you could do. Or would want to do. <laughs> yeah. Or would want to do. <laughs> but then I was thinking, if things mm. are going slowly enough, could you deal with a couple seconds sure. and it wouldn't be a big deal? You know, it, like I mean, just, you, you, you know. could sure, you could do it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, technically, you could do rendezvous, uh, remote control rendezvous around Mars if you wanted to. It's just the window of, of error is so wide that it's, you know... Possible versus, you know, actually, <laughs> yeah, actually, something you would accept. You wouldn't be able to get things done very quickly with Mars, but if it's something that's only a couple of seconds away, and more specifically, the movements themselves are very slow, which I imagine this was, then you know, it probably wouldn't hurt too badly, like to try and kind of, you know, grab the joystick and make it happen. <laughs> um, yeah, I but know. I think I think another thing that is we don't really have. Do do we have comms on the far side of the moon right now? I know that China, we were talking uh, yeah, about them yeah, putting trade, something yeah. in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that actually uh, active right now? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah okay. That's so, active. That's- so yeah, you wouldn't have to worry too much about comms windows closing. But that was something else that, you know, until recently would have been an issue. I love that one person was pointing out that, you know, because Chang'e 5 and Chang'e 4 were both multi-part missions, that there's mm-hmm. like six or seven different Chinese uh, spacecraft on or orbiting yeah. the moon right now, which is just pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. So Sam in the chat actually points out that they are considering an extended mission for the Ascender because they have lots of fuel left over. And so they're, they're thinking about maybe doing something else with it. At this point, you know, maybe using it as a kinetic impactor might be <laughs> their, mm-hmm. their only real science they can get out of it. But you know, it's got, it probably has, uh, first thing my brain um, went to as well. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm sure they have, like, range-finding hardware on there, so maybe you can use their rendezvous radar, or, you know, I, I don't know what the what what's actually installed, but maybe you've got some some radar you could use to do some additional mapping or something. I don't know, it's pretty cool. So, am I confusing the service module for the ascent module? Because isn't the service module going to bring the sample back, or is that what also stays in orbit and then something else deploys? Because I'm not, again, the architecture of this, I'm a little bit fuzzy on. Okay, so I think the service module is coming home and the return vehicle is what's entering the atmosphere. So it has to be the ascent unit, like you said. Staying in orbit? Yeah, it's the ascent unit. That That's, that's specifically what was cited. So the ascent module might actually remain behind, like you said. Um, yeah, that might go into the L2 point just like previous missions have done, I guess maybe to carry out some more experiments or do some surface observations, or maybe they might just use it at, like as a kinetic impactor, which yeah, I... Yeah, I don't know if it has enough enough power to get up to L2. It's quite possible. At least, I mean, they did something very similar. This is actually back in 2014. There was the uh, the Chang'e 5T1 mission, which was really, mm-hmm. you know, sort of like uh, the Apollo 8 version of this whole operation. So they did everything short of land and come back. But uh, yeah, they had plenty of Delta V left over in what I believe was their ascent module and they just stuck it at the L2 point. And it's still operating to this day, you know, just kind of holding station there. I think you need like 75.75 kilometers per second to get to L2. I mean, maybe maybe there's some low low energy transfers you can do, but I I would I would kind of be surprised to get to L two from the lunar surface. Well, to to get to L two from low low moon orbit, because to get 
just to get from the surface up to low orbit is almost two kilometers a second. And so you'd, you'd have to have an overage of like 60 or uh, you only spent 60% of your budget and you've got 40% left or something like that. Yeah, let's talk about the orbit too, by the way. So the ascent module should still be in a 15 by 185 kilometer orbit. And that's interesting to me. Um, I mean, I know it's the moon and so that, that's totally a possible thing, but it always surprises me to hear 15 kilometers. Coming in close. <laughs> yeah, like it almost seems like there might be a crater that pokes up a little bit too high since it's such a low gravity. I, do, I don't know how high the highest features on the moon are, but... Uh, Mount Everest is, what, eight and a half kilometers? So this would this, that's basically two Everests. Mons Huygens uh, comes up to almost exactly 18,000 feet. So that's more than half of Mount Everest. Yeah, so I guess we should talk about the geology here, right? And I don't know much about the instrumentation, but I guess, you know, they didn't need much since really this is to bring back samples. Uh, but there was some instrumentation on board uh, to take some readings. So the specific region that they chose, they chose because they wanted to get a sample of, let's say, the moon and not something that has, you know, impacted the moon, since that's what most of the moon seems to be. Um, so, yeah, this was near Mons Rumker, or Rumker, I don't know how to pronounce it. There's like a little umlaut above the U. Uh, and this is in uh, the Oceanus Procellarum, or Procellarum, I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, that's... That's a that's a kind of famous one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like other missions have gone there and will go there. It means ocean or the sea of something cool, but it's I don't the, remember. It's uh, the ocean of storms. Storms, that's right, yeah. There doesn't seem to be too many impacts, and so that's why they chose it. The idea is to get a relatively young sample. And I guess by that, they mean something that's not from a very old asteroid, right, that it has impacted the surface because I don't know why the surface would be young. You know what I mean? Because generally we think of the surface as having, I guess, older rock, right? And then the further down you go, but that's if you have geological activity. I don't know. I'm, well, I'm I mean, already the moon, confused. I'm not a geologist. Yeah, and I, I don't know too much about lunar geology, but I know, right? I mean, so the moon had most of its geologic activity billions of years ago, right? When the Maria basically kind of flowed through the thinner parts of the crust. And that's why we have the seas and oceans, I guess, you know, <laughs> Oceanus Cross Long. But when they talk about the age of rocks, generally, I mean, you're, you're talking about, you know, if you're talking about native rocks there, that when was the last time there was geologic activity? In other words, when was the last time, when, when did those rocks cool? Like, when was their last, you know, lava that had kind of flowed there and f- cooled to form, you know, igneous rocks there? And so if the moon still had some geologic activity 1.2 billion years ago, I, I didn't know that, but that's, I mean, I could believe that. So the, the Apollo samples are, uh, according to Wikipedia, 3.1 to 4.4 billion years old. And, and I think that the fact that they're landing near Mons Rumker puts them near, I mean, it's like a volcanic mound, right? So I think that's like one, like you said, Dennis, one of the most recent lava flows and young, even compared to the Maria in general, right? Yeah, because the Maria is, were three billion plus years yeah, ago. Yeah, which is, which is crazy. One, one point two billion years. That's, that's nothing. That, yeah, I didn't realize that there was geologic activity that recently. Sorry, I just love that one point two billion years ago was recent. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Geologically speaking, kind of. It is, yeah. But, um, but I didn't know that Mons Rumker, so that's a volcano and not a crater? Yeah, Mons yeah. would be the tip-off there. Well, I mean, do they make that distinction? I didn't know that. I Ma- thought they Mon- Mons means those. mountain. Mons are mountains. Right, yeah. but I mean, I didn't I didn't know that they, again, I didn't know, I didn't know that they made that, like, 
do people who name these things made that distinction? Like if you have a giant crater, do they ever name those? Do they ever give Mons to a name to any of those? Or is it always just volcanoes and other mountains? Maybe if there's a, a central peak in the middle of the crater, but mm -hmm. typically they're not that big. So yeah. Okay. May call that a hill or something. <laughs> okay. I suppose so. Yeah. Cause I guess they said, you know, you would say such and such crater, this crater, that crater, you wouldn't say Mons. But just about the only thing though, that I can add like context wise for why this is, that's so awesome to pin down the actual have samples from a much younger age is that that's how we determine the age of different parts of Mars mm -hmm. or basically anywhere else in the solar system is mm -hmm. by crater counting. And the way you calibrate crater counting is by comparing the number of craters over a given area to the actual age of the rocks, which you determine right radiometrically. And we only can do that with, you know, the Earth, uh, with the moon. And so mm -hmm. basically assume yep. things hit the moon just as much as they hit Mars, say, and Mercury. And so, so that's, that's, that's huge. <laughs> Cause like yeah. you said, there wasn't that big of a, a lever arm, so to speak, uh, <laughs> with the samples, you know, going from four-ish billion to, you know, three-ish billion. So they expect more rock fragments in the regolith, um, just as a result of, you know, this being a somewhat more undisturbed region, undisturbed and recent, I suppose, too, yeah, since, younger. you know, you have all this uh, volcanic lava, which is just crazy to think that, you know, there's lava flowing on the moon only 1.2 billion years ago, but okay. Did, did you mention the, the core drill that they used? It got down to a depth of about two meters, and then they brought that back up, and the sample, so they're basically trying to collect a total of two kilograms, and um, half a kilogram of that will be the drilled material, one 0.5 kilograms will be scooped material that they're just going to scoop off the surface. I don't know much about the mechanics of the drill, how that works. Um, do you have anything? Well, I, I know that they, as they bring that core up, they put it into um, a Kevlar sleeve, um, so like a, a giant Kevlar straw, I guess. Um, and I'm assuming that that will then, it has, you know, just because of how long it is, that needs to get broken up into multiple pieces, or maybe they're only preserving um, one part of it, but they're actually bringing those cores back intact. So they're not just drilling and mm -hmm. then returning mixed dust. They're mm. actually bringing back core samples, um, which is See. really fantastic. I mean, when was the last time that we brought back uh, any samples from the moon? And, and I, I know that they had drills in Apollo, but I don't know if they actually got core samples like that. Yeah. Well, the most recent sample return was actually Luna 24 by the Soviet Union. Oh, Sam in the chat says for the Luna cores, they actually coiled up the core. That's really cool. Okay. okay. Well, there you go. So, mm. yeah, because I was kind of thinking like maybe they just kind of wound them up kind of like a hose, you know? Mm. Get them to fit. <laughs> that's so cool. There. Um, that's the best way to leave it undisturbed because either that or you'd have to pinch it off and kind of, you know, stack it. So you could actually do like stratigraphy on these samples. Yeah. It, it looks like the Luna 16 core at least was only 35 millimeters deep. That's not far at all. Compared to 2000 millimeters. <laughs> right, right, right. There was also an imaging spectrometer that was on board and that was, um, you know, like obviously to take spectroscopy of the various materials on the surface. And there was also a penetrating radar used for subsurface stratigraphy. So you not only get a core, but you get the 
picture of the surrounding rock. That's very cool. Yeah, they can kind of take that picture and then they know, according to that picture, you know, exactly where they drilled into. So they kind of have some, you know, I guess context, context you could say. Yeah. So uh, that's what we have so far. And with any luck, in a couple of weeks, it will be re-entering the Earth's atmosphere and touching down in Inner Mongolia. Um, which is not in Mongolia. That's actually a part of China, just to be clear. So, right. so let's translate on over to the other sample return mission, <laughs> uh, Hayabusa 2. So Ben, yeah, you want to do the timeline for that one too? <laughs> yeah, I can do it. I can do a second timeline. Uh, so the timeline for this podcast is first I did the Chang'e 5 timeline, and now I'm doing the Hayabusa 2. <laughs> okay. I'm, uh, I'm meta timeline. Okay. <laughs> so Hayabusa 2 launched in December 2014. Um, it took almost two years to get all, all the way out there to, uh, Itakawa. Oh, Ryugu. Sorry. Oh, Ryugu. Sorry. 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 Hayabusa yeah. 1. Uh, it, it arrived in June 28. You know, if you asked me what Hayabusa, which asteroid Hayabusa 1 went to, there's no way I would have been able to pull it out of my head, but you, I try to remember <laughs> where Hayabusa 2 went. So it, it arrived in June of 2018. It did two touchdowns. Um, the first one was in February of 2019. The second one was in July. And then it departed the asteroid in November of last year um, and has spent all this time getting back home. And uh, it, it just re-entered uh, yesterday as we re-record this, December 5th at 2.47 p.m. Eastern Time. Yep, and I didn't get to catch that, but I saw some interesting pics. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of cool images of the recovery team. Oh, yeah, and, and the entry. Did you see any of the, uh, the, the video? Of the capsule re-entry, I watched video, but I didn't. I didn't get to watch it live because I I was stupid and ah, same here. <laughs> but um, it re-entered at night, which is kind of cool because you can see it a little bit better. But obviously, the actual recovery, they had to wait till sunup, and then that's when they went and got it. And uh, I believe they had uh, a some kind of a signal beacon transponder or something, and uh, they were able to locate it. The the capsule did, but I don't believe that the heat shields did. It had a uh, heat shield and what I think of as a back shell, but they call it a rear heat shield. And they actually located all three elements like very quickly. I mean, the, the two heat shields they located within, I think like, you know, 10, 20 minutes of each other. Um, but they, they found everything and it sounded like a highly successful recovery effort. Stai in the chat says that apparently, um, ISS was able to see it. Oh, uh, yeah. That's, so that's Ichinoguchi nice. mentioned that. Yeah, he tweeted it. That's kind of neat. A nice little happy accident. They were passing overhead right. just as it was reentering. How cool is that? And so, yeah, they're they're going to take it to some facility at Woomera, and they're doing, um, what do they call it, a quick look or a quick check or something? There was a term that I had read. Yeah, um, quick look. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know too much about, the, uh, about uh, th these facilities that can handle samples like this, but my understanding is that there's not... It's not like every country has one, you know what I mean? Or, or It seems like, yeah, it, it's highly specialized. And Japan, though, because they've been such a player in terms of uh, sample returns, um, that they do have uh, their own kind of, you know, facilities. In the show notes, there's, there's uh, an image uh, that I really love, which is one of the recovery team carrying the, the vehicle back. Um, and uh, David, you just pointed out the 
the body armor that he's wearing. And uh, I, I just love this, this photo. And I love the, the journalist in the background with the red puffy jacket on just something about he, he looks so engaged and so interested. And, um, and I imagine this, uh, the guy with the with the bullet vest on or the the explosives vest on like imagine what's running through his head like you you have to be so proud um and it's so exciting to be the one who picks this up and you know the first person to touch it since it returned it's so cool the only thing going through my mind would be don't drop it because i don't feel like it's something that i would do (laughs) it's it's one of those things in space that you can connect with instantly on this emotional level where you're just like, Oh, that's cool. After all those millions of miles. Yeah. So the, the re-entry, uh, vehicle, uh, is pretty small, 40 centimeters across 20 centimeters tall and only 16 kilograms, uh, in weight. And, and I believe all three of those attributes, uh, go down once it's, uh, drop the heat shields. I I think that that's the whole thing. And then uh, two weeks ago, we talked about the extended mission that that Hayabusa 2 is now flying off towards. Uh, But I I thought I'd mention it again, just because it's so cool that they get to do this. It's going to take them a while, um, but they're going to fly past an asteroid um, 2001 CC 21 in 2026. Then they're going to do two earth flybys to help get them into the right order to or the, the right orbit, uh, to go rendezvous with another asteroid 1998 KY 26. And that'll be in 2032. And they're going to go into orbit around KY 26 and, and do more science hmm. and, you know, maybe even drop some more of their markers on, on the, on the asteroids. Very cool. Hmm. I mean, it's ion propulsion is a heck of a thing right yeah although i don't know because th- it didn't go into orbit around yugu i thought that was interesting right it, it might just uh trail behind it you know in a in, like in formation like oh, okay heliocentric. yeah i mean truly orbit is uh it is a very tenuous thing around mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, around right. these objects so so sure yeah it kind of has to just hold its relative position because i mean there's no yeah there's just not enough gravity and what gravity there is i'm sure is very lumpy as you like but, to say so yeah. no but i i just i just like i just always i think that's so cool though because i mean yeah that that lets you not only is like that cool because that lets you visit this world without actually having to go in orbit around it but to right, actually yeah. pull off an orbit was kind of why uh osiris rex set all those records because mm-hmm. that one does in fact orbit yeah Bennu, which is mm-hmm ridiculous <laughs> what's the orbital period oh i don't um hours really i would have thought it would have been a lot longer than that i mean i know it's small but how fast could it be possibly going um oh no it's 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 days yeah yeah that's At what ten, i was yeah. thinking was it like a week yeah 22 to 62 hours there you go that's five centimeters a second orbital speed all right three short and sweets What's the first one, Ben? All right. A new plane-launched rocket appears. This week, small launch company Avum presented a mock-up of their new launch vehicle. Raven-X is a hunchbacked, ultra-streamlined F-35 look-alike UAV with a two-stage rocket slung under its belly. It's 80 feet long and has a wingspan of 60 feet and is planned to fly hangar-to-hangar autonomously. Their CEO says that they think of this as a three-stage system with the UAV as the first stage. 
uh, due to their short delay between release and ignition. Avum currently has one undisclosed customer, Aslan 45, a U.S. Space Force Agile Launch Stimulus mission originally awarded to Vector Launch. Questions have been raised about the company's funding, as well as the veracity of their engine test claims. However, we hope that Avum won't disappear into smoke, and we wish them luck. And then next up, ESA signs the world's first contract for space debris removal. The European Space Agency has finalized a $104 million deal with Swiss startup ClearSpace SA for removal of a payload adapter from LEO. The payload adapter is an ideal first target for ClearSpace. The adapter is from a Vega upper stage in a 801 by 604 kilometer orbit and weighs 112 kilograms. This makes it similar to many satellites in need of removal from orbit. The debris removal mission is slated for 2025, and if successful, ClearSpace plans to attempt increasingly difficult missions, ultimately using a single spacecraft to deorbit multiple targets. Finally, the first real-time link between high and low Earth orbits has been achieved. After five years of collaboration, Inmarsat and AdValue Innovation have announced their inter-satellite relay system service following the successful demonstration of live connectivity between Capella Space's Sequoia satellite and their control center. Sequoia and LEO communicated via the L-band with Inmarsat's I-4 satellite network, which sits in a geostationary orbit. Operators typically have suffered from low latency in contacting their LEO satellites due to the sparsity of ground stations, so the new system, which uses AdValue's onboard terminal and Inmarsat's data relay service, should allow persistent on-demand transfer of data. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns, and we have some uh, interesting insights from Espen Urkdal or Urkadal. Um. <laughs> so yeah, le- less less an insight, more of a speculation that rings true to my ear. Yeah, that's an insight, right? Isn't that what that? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I-, I think insight Questions, implies additional knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, so Espen says, uh, it, speaking of the, uh, the electron interstage, which we were speculating about last week, the, um, the thermal protection system, Espen says, uh, if the stage comes down with the engines directly in line with the velocity vector, then the interstage probably doesn't get much heating. But what if it comes in at a slight angle? Probably doesn't take much of an angle for the interstage to poke out into the airstream, either intentionally or unintentionally. And yeah, I, th- I think that's, uh, I think that's a really good, observation slash speculation. Um, and so that, that might be a good reason why, and we were kind of talking about this, uh, why it's the inner stage that has the TPS and not like, that's where they started with the TPS sort of, um, what, what, what are the tail feathers on a dart called, you know, just kind of like, that's, what's mm-hmm. going to swing the farthest. Yeah. Although I have to admit, I can't intuitively visualize it, it. Like if you, like if you have a cylinder that's coming in at, let's say not dead on, but more at, you know, like an angle of attack where, you know, you're presenting like more of the broadside, what kind of a, what just like, what are the dynamics of that? Cause I don't know what that looks like when you're dealing with a cylinder. Like that's something that I can't quite visualize. Yeah. And so it, I don't know if it pokes out or, well, it'll, you know, what that happens. shape that, the shape of the of the shot cone that you really need to be worried about it's roughly parabolic and it is aligned with the travel direction of the vehicle um so if depending on the the slope of that parabola you know like how wide how quickly it becomes wide um, if mm-hmm. your vehicle is, you know, particularly wide, presenting a wide aspect ratio to the oncoming flow. And especially if you are as asymmetric in your mass as, as a, 
empty stages. Yeah, I, th- I think you could. De- I mean, I I don't know what the actual flow dynamics are here, but like I, I can totally imagine that you know getting up to or you know close to that hot. Uh, shot cone. I mean, I don't think that the shot cone has a particularly blunt face. I, I think it, I mean, we're talking about supersonic, uh, speeds here. So there may be a very, a very an abrupt change from disturbed air to screaming past air. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like there, there may be a very sharp <laughs> transition there, but you know, it might, it might also be a little fuzzy. Yeah. I don't know. We, we need to get a, an, uh, hypersonic flow person <laughs> to <Yeah>. tell us. <laughs> so, yep, just that one correction, and then moving on to this week in spaceflight history. So the winners, we have Ben Hallert, Christian Lowe, Avedemark Space Agency, the Greek, Kyle Foster, and Eric, and I guess that this is, they are all full-on winners, right? Oh, full, yeah, full, every every single one winners. of them got bonus points, maximum credit, yep. The clue was zero seconds, zero seconds, two seconds, 4,057 seconds, and an A. And Dennis, you're going to tell us what that means. And, and you know, my speculation last week was kind of right. It was kind of like an ominous thing, sort of, somewhat. Mm. So, you know, like something transmitting or happening and then eventually just no longer transmitting at all. And right. that's kind of what we're talking about here. So, but yeah. And, and cause I, cause I sorted them from lowest to highest and then NA afterwards. It almost made it seem like this was happen. This was a progression, but. This was basically happening near simultaneous, mm. uh, all the different probes and the bus. But, but yeah, so I mean, right? That's 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 the idea that this is uh, the 9th of December, uh, 1978, uh, and it was the Pioneer Venus multiprobe mission uh, when it actually entered the atmosphere. And so uh, I'll talk a bit more about what those times are. But uh, yeah, good job for everyone that won because uh, you know recognize what those times were. And um, so, right, this is 1978. So I guess for context, right, we've had the, the, the Pioneer program had been going for a while. The Soviets had been visiting Venus uh, all throughout, you know, the 60s and 70s. Uh, uh, this is before the Vegas, but, you know, the veneers were already soft landing on the surface. So NASA was thinking, you know, we want to get in on this as well. And so um, after, you know, collaborating and working with uh, what was then Hughes, but then uh, later during the mission became uh, Boeing satellite systems. Uh, they planned their own, you know, Venus mission uh, in the late seventies. And so this was a uh, two-parter actually it, uh, you know, uh, Pioneer 12, uh, which is more commonly just called Pioneer Venus Orbiter. And then uh, Pioneer 13, which is the Pioneer Venus Multiprobe. And so these were two separate spacecraft uh, on separate launches. Um, the orbiter was launched a couple months before the multiprobe was launched, but uh, they were both trying to target that, you know, 1978 uh, transfer window. And so um, the multiprobe bus is a, a Hughes 507, just because I like the satellite buses. This is one that looks kind of like a donut. The 376s are my favorite satellite bus if we talked about them a couple weeks ago those are the ones that look like uh well cylinders but they were nested cylinders and so it could extend itself these are ones that are basically in the early shuttle missions you see them getting launched uh, left and right while you know the multi-probes uh mission ended you know on the on the date the 9th of december um the uh orbiter uh, actually kept going until uh the 90s 1992 and so it was a quite an extended mission. And so uh, they both launched on uh, Atlas SLV 3Ds with a Centaur D1AR upper stage. And again, like I mentioned, uh, there was about a month between those launches. And so uh, it was happening. uh, I think the Orbiter was launched in May and then um, the multi-probe mission was launched in, in August. 
of that same year, 1978. And so what, what is the multi-probe, right? So, so it's, this, it's, it's a satellite bus, and then there's uh, one large probe sitting in the middle, on, you know, on top, I guess, with three identical small probes around it. And so the idea was that we were going to, you know, we, we had first talked about this, at least since I've been, you know, on the show, um, when David, you had talked about the idea of just having, you know, why don't you just dump like, you know, hundreds of small sats into the Venusian atmosphere or something like that, right? Uh, small probes, which is awesome. And we kind of, you know, I, I remember Sam in the chat pointing out that, you know, we did kind of do this already with, you know, this multi-probe mission in the 70s. And so um, the engineering was pretty intense, right? You had to deal with, you know, 11.7 uh, kilometer per second speeds, 300s. Uh, somewhere in the like 300s of uh, G's worth of deceleration would be experienced. Um, I'd see numbers that went up as high as 500 in one of my sources during peak uh, deceleration. Uh, right? It's got that sulfuric acid in the atmosphere. It's got temperatures exceeding 450 degrees Celsius, and then surface pressures greater, you know, approaching 100 atmospheres of the Earth. Yeah. <laughs> I guess those high G loads are just because of how thick the atmosphere is, right? Like you mm -hmm. can't really come in. Any, I mean, you could come in slower if you have the delta V to do that, but you don't. So you're just going to have to slam into, you know, effectively a wall. Right. <laughs> and, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and for like, you know, to kind of, I, I like trying to think of things and scaling them to like where the Earth's atmosphere is. I think that peak G load was experienced somewhere in the like uh, 70s or 80s uh, kilometers above the surface, mm -hmm. which I mean, at that point, you're, you're, you know, approaching space on earth you know what i mean like <laughs> and so that's uh and yet you know the venusian atmosphere is that thick that you can you know basically hit that wall that high up pretty remarkable so these 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 probes were uh mostly uh titanium uh, was chosen for uh, for their structure because uh, you know it, it it still maintains the strength at the really high temperatures and can be modestly uh thick yeah and so keep you as lightly as possible so so you said mostly titanium do you know how much of the mass was taken up by the structure because like when i think about slamming something into venus i think yeah i would like this to be more titanium than instrument good question they do talk about that the uh basically the the aeroshell and the back shell made up about one third of the total mass of the large probe um, and then the uh small probes didn't have the back shell it looks like the science instruments take up a tenth of the mass. Okay, yeah. I, so that I right, I guess demonstrates just how hardy you needed to make these yeah. things, you know? Yeah. And so I mean, right, like so so as for what the probes themselves it's a good transition for what the probes themselves are actually like. And so the, the large probe was about three hundred uh well, three hundred and two kilograms, uh uh one point four two meters in diameter and had nine windows. And so uh you know there was a number of instruments on board as you can imagine. The instruments were all in the uh, the pressure vessel, uh, which basically is nested between, you know, the forward-facing, you know, aeroshell uh, and then a, uh, a back shell as well um, that are ultimately removed during descent. I'll talk about it in a bit. And uh, there were seven instruments on board. If you read about any, like, basically probes, uh, space probes that go into atmospheres, like, you know, you know the Huygens space probe or, you know, any of these ones, you, you'll often see a nephilometer on there, which basically measures the concentration of suspended particles. And so that's that's kind of a common one. Uh, but there was, you know, otherwise sort of the usual suspects, uh, an infrared radiometer, uh, neutral mass spectrometers, a gas chromatograph. So basically, you know, temperature, pressure, um, 
composition as it comes plowing through there. Because that was kind of the main science goal was to kind of get a, a good idea of the uh, the cloud and atmospheric structure. And so uh, this was an interesting bit here uh, that I had learned about the mission. So the windows <laughs> were a lot, they were non-trivial, basically. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Great way to put that. Thank and, and and in particular, the infrared radiometer gave them trouble. And so they, they had tried to, you know, have it, you know, they tested it behind sapphire windows like the other instruments, but that wasn't quite working for some reason. And so they, they ultimately had to settle on a diamond uh, window. And it, it turned out to be the single most expensive component of the mm. probe. And here's a quote from the source, which will be in the show notes. After an intense search conducted by New York's diamond merchants, <laughs> two stones weighing 31 and 200 carats respectively were purchased to yield the prime and backup windows. Wow. So these I were mean, natural, get, natural yeah, diamonds. You need a monolithic Jeez. piece like this, apparently, to fashion the window. Oh, Lord. And uh, yeah. So um, <laughs> it was pretty... Uh, pretty wild, but that's yeah. That 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 was the large probe, and then the small probes. Uh, again, there were three of them. They're about the third a third of the mass, so 94 kilograms. Uh, they were 0.76 meters uh, in size, and so that's like two feet and change roughly. And uh, they only had two windows, and uh, kind of a difference. There there were you know a number of differences in, in addition to just the, the change in size, but they um they they were kind of similar. Uh, like their pressure vessel looked kind of similar, I guess, to the large probes. But, um, you know, it didn't have a back shell to it and that uh, during entry, it was a little different, too. It basically stayed attached to the aero shell the whole time. And so the small probes had much, much less uh, instruments. Uh, they had uh, basically only three. One uh, that probed atmospheric structures, uh, a nephilometer as well, and then a net flux radiometer. So I guess that's a broadband radiometer measuring, you know, the, the energy you're getting, basically, radiative, radiative energy you're getting off the surface or you're getting as you descend through the atmosphere. So yeah, the, the it makes sense that they had to use diamond if if they're doing radiom radiometry radiometry, um, mm. and I, there there'll be a, a photo in the show notes that I find absolutely mesmerizing. Uh, these things, the the diamond window was the size of two pennies stacked on top of each other, and there's a photo of one of the scientists looking through the window, and mm. that is an absolutely massive piece of diamond, and um, the <laughs> what what cracks me up is that um, they classified the probe as an export uh, so that they didn't have to pay import-export uh, duty. <laughs> um, apparently, they did some some funny uh, uh, funny work that kind of like um, not having to pay taxes while you're on the moon. Uh, right. you, you get an extension, but holy crap, this is just amazing. Sorry, I'm fascinated by this window for some reason. I guess it's like the only thing that can withstand that kind of heat and pressure are the very things that are, you know, created by it. And so <laughs> yeah, that's why they picked it. That's a good way to think of it. So so is that a little bit of graph oil that you can see around the edges, that little dark, do you think? Yes, that was the um, the ceiling surface they used. It was a graph oil with uh, anvaloy and inconel. So, um, so what happens when these probes basically, uh, you know, go into the atmosphere? Uh, in the case of the large probe, uh, basically there's a mortar-fired uh, pilot chute that goes and pulls off that aft cover, the kind of back shell, and that then deploys the main parachute, and then it kind of just cruises for a little bit, and then um, explosive bolts blast away the aeroshell, and after 17 minutes of kind of 
you know, parachuting through there. Eventually they cut the parachute and then it just free falls to the surface. Um, in the case of the small probes, basically they could peer over the forward-facing aeroshell, or I guess mm. downward-facing as you're going through the atmosphere. So they were kept throughout the descent, which might have to do with why a couple of them survived to a degree, which is, uh, again, where the clue, which I still haven't actually explained, come from. And so uh, the upshot, though, is that this was basically a 40-minute ordeal uh, between taking data and the impact of the uh, different probes. And so the timeline um, is given kind of in terms of, you know, entry minus blank number of days. So in E minus 28 days, uh, the spacecraft bus has been, you know, cruising, you know, for you know months or however long, uh, or actually, yeah, a, a few months. Uh, but at that point, at E minus 28 days, it orients itself to uh, basically be able to communicate back with Earth. So it kind of wakes up. Um, at E minus 24 days, so four days later, the large probe is released. And so that's that's always something I think of. I, I mean, in my brain, I always imagine you go into orbit and then you drop these probes in immediately, right? But that's not really what we do, right? We, we tend to release the probes while we're still approaching the target. And so that was true for Huygens and, you know, has been true for this mission as well. 24 days prior, right, the, the large probe is released. And then four days after that, at E minus 20 days, the bus actually spins up to be able to release the, the small probes into their specific locations. And yeah, this is a wonderful image, uh, Ben, you just shared to Discord that kind of shows um, the small probes went to very different locations. One was at a very uh, northernly uh, a high latitude in the north um, that landed on the night side. Uh, one was at a southern uh, latitude, mid-latitude that landed in the daytime, and then one in a closer to the equator, uh, but also at night. That's why they had to speed it up. But unfortunately, that meant, though, that the the probes, as they're released, kind of flung out like frisbees, um, were spinning uh, uh, too much to be able to you know, orient their heat shields correctly. And so the small probes had a little yo-yo weight mechanism that would be deployed four minutes prior to entry, which would slow down their rotation to only 17 RPM. And then uh, that would be cut loose and they would be able to kind of hit the atmosphere just fine. And so uh, the timing worked out perfect and they all hit the atmosphere five days after the orbiter, which again was launched a month earlier, um, had, you know, uh, gone into, uh, inserted itself into Venusian orbit. And I, th I thought this was a fun little uh, tidbit of trivia about the orbiter. They, uh, I mean, they, they had science goals, but they found that they could do that with a 24-hour orbit. And so that's why they picked um, some of the parameters that they did uh, for the orbiter, just for convenience. <laughs> so mm. that way you didn't yeah. have, uh, you know, the, the mission team having to basically shift their, you know, uh, sleep schedule by 40 minutes every day or, you know, however long. But ultimately, here's where the clue comes in. So, um, right, the Venera uh, spacecraft, a number of them were designed for soft landings and did soft land and, you know, return images of the surface of Venus just fine and great. Uh, but of these probes, the large probe uh, did not make it you know to the surface or i mean it impacted but but there was no uh no data no communication uh received uh, signal was lost uh, upon impact uh similarly for the the north probe the one that hit the the high northern latitude um there was no uh so again zero seconds of kind of life once it hit impact once it impacted now the night probe actually communicated, uh, they had a signal for two seconds after impact, but there was no information, no telemetry, no nothing that was uh, transmitted. And then the day probe actually managed to survive and returned basic engineering data for one hour, seven minutes and 37 seconds after impact, or 
4,057 seconds. And so that's where those times come from, 0 seconds, 0 seconds, 2 seconds, and then 4,057 seconds. And then the NA is referencing the satellite bus, which was purposely kind of thrown in there. They gave it two instruments, uh, two mass spectrometers, so it could take, uh, in particular, uh, study the ap upper atmosphere. And so it burned up uh, at over 115 I think it was 115 kilometers, something in that ballpark. And so they purposely gave it a very shallow angle so it would kind of get torn up up there. And so that's where the uh, the NA comes in. I, I just want to say, I was, when I was thinking about this, I, I think of it in terms of uh, the galaxy brain meme, if you guys are familiar with that one. Mm -hmm. So so the basic idea is the, the kind of uh, beginner level understanding of this is that, you know, the, yes, please the explain Russians. this meme to us. This makes me very happy. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, so, so the basic level of understanding is that the Soviets soft landed on Venus, and they're the only ones that did. And then the uh, next level understanding is that ah, but the Americans actually did too. We had a probe that actually was able to return, you know, this data for uh, you know, a little over an hour, even though it wasn't designed for that. This is totally not part of its design. They were just you know atmospheric probes, but. It, you know, that was a nice little bonus there. Uh, but then the galaxy brain understanding is that a second probe of those four actually survived for two seconds post-impact <laughs> to remain communicating with us. And that, that, that was, that surprised me because I always, I thought that was a neat bit of trivia that we accidentally landed on Venus. Um, but I didn't realize we did it with two probes. <laughs> but yeah, so that's, I mean, that's basically the mission. Uh, it was coordinated so that all the, um, you know, the small probes entered the atmosphere within minutes of each other. So this kind of was, you know, uh, sort of a simultaneous thing happening. And, um, yeah, basically, we, we learned a lot about the atmospheric structure and, you know, the wind speeds. Uh, and this really worked well with uh, synergizing with the, um, you know, the, the Venera uh, missions as well. Uh, really cool stuff. And, and there are still, you know, papers being published uh, using Pioneer Venus multiprobe data to this day. Very valuable. And so uh, next week, which is the 15th through the 21st of December. David, do you have a clue for us? Okay, so I got the clue for next week. And next week it is in 2004. And the clue is, I get gas when you push me too hard. That's right. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, we worked I on get this gas. one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, don't, don't tell them that this is our best effort. Just to be clear, because I will give this away. I don't mean me. I'm just reading the clue. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah, I get gas when you push me too hard. Uh, that is the clue. Next week in 2004. So if you think you know what that is about, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Let's move on then to upcoming spaceflight events. We got a lot this week, actually. So mm -hmm. Ben, you're going to start us off with the first one, Falcon 9. Yeah, so uh, Falcon 9 Block 5 is going to be launching Sirius uh, SXM, Sirius Satellite uh, 7. And uh, it's actually going to be going up and replacing uh, XM3. SXM7 is going to be replacing XM3. I don't know why they added the S's in the, in the recent vehicles, um, but it's going to be going up to 85 degrees west um, and uh, take over that slot. Um, XM3 is also called Rhythm. And so I wonder if they're going to, if they're going to transfer the name. I, I, we could probably figure it out because XM3 replaced XM1, I believe. Anyway, um, this mission is going to be flying on Thursday, December 10th. Uh, it has a fairly long launch window of two hours, um, from 1619 hours UT, 1619 hours UTC to 1819 hours UTC. And then uh, also on December 10th, very exciting, uh, Astra will be making another experimental orbital launch attempt. 
And so this will be Rocket 3.2 on you know a test flight. And so the launch window runs from uh, 1900 to 2200 UTC, uh, but uh, for you know people on the East Coast, uh, that's two to five PM uh, Eastern Standard Time. And so uh, of course this is uh, launching. Uh, you know, will launch from the Pacific Spaceport Complex in uh, Kodiak, Alaska, Kodiak Island, which is a really cool island that we learned a lot about just a few weeks yeah. ago <laughs> in, in Alaska. Next up is the launch of a Delta IV Heavy, the Enroll 44 mission. So this is a classified hope, payload. Yeah. Bob Hope, what? No, no, I said, I hope, I hope, I hope, because this has been the scrub of one, yeah. right? All right, yeah. So let's. So we'll see <laughs> if it actually launches. Uh, that launch date and window is on December tenth from twenty two fifty UTC through uh, December eleventh oh three thirty UTC. So that's uh, what like five hours or so, something like that. Nice long launch window. So maybe they'll pull it off. Um, but they that's launching from Cape Canaveral from Space Launch Complex thirty seven B. And yeah, good luck, Enroll 44. So Yeah, I mean, like, just, just listen. Delayed, scrubbed, aborted, delayed, scrubbed, scrubbed, aborted, delayed. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it's overdue. It's, it's, it's time to get that bird out of the nest. All right, mm -hmm. then we have another Electron flight. This is uh, going to be really cool to see how their recovery efforts go. Um, so this is Electron flying Strix A or Strix Alpha. The mission name is the Owl, the Owl's Night Begins. Um, and it's a, a, a demo mission for, um, Synspective, which is a Japanese company. And, uh, they're doing this demo, but eventually they're hoping to have an entire constellation of these, uh, synthetic aperture uh, radar satellites. Um, and this is going to be really cool. Um, they are flying a, uh, a custom fairing just for Synspective, um, because their, their vehicle is pretty wide. So, um, they're going to use a wider fairing, um, than they normally would. I don't know if this is, uh, like a one-off fairing or if they're, this is just the first time they're going to use it and they're going to keep, I mean, I'm assuming they're going to keep the, uh, the molds sitting around, uh, so they can use it again in the future if need be. But, um, uh, we may or may not ever see this particular fairing, uh, configuration fly again. So of course this is flying out of, uh, New Zealand pad 1A and it's going to be flying on Saturday. December 12th. The launch window is almost two hours. Uh, it runs from 0900 UTC to 01059 UTC. So uh, two hours minus one minute. And then on December 11th, uh, keep an eye out for an Angara A5 test flight. And so this is, uh, you know, this is going to be uh, the second orbital test flight for this new uh, Russian rocket. And um, it's already had a few uh, delays, but uh, uh, and the time is not quite clear. But you know, keep an eye out on December 11th. Uh, and just you know, this is also one that launches from uh, Plesetsk. Yeah, and Angara A5 is really cool because it's like a Delta IV heavy heavy. It's it's mm -hmm. got a, a the core is called mm -hmm. URM1, and then it's got four strapped on four extra yeah. URM1 strapped onto the outside. And then lastly, we have a well, almost okay. Second, yeah. last lastly launch. for last for things going up. The lastly for launches uh, is a PSLV XL, and that's launching CS or CMS01 or GSAT 12R. And this is uh, so yeah, it, it's now called CMS01. It's formerly known as GSAT 12R, and it's a telecommunications satellite for India. 
So uh, pretty straightforward. That's launching from Sri Harikota in India. The launch window is on December 14th from 0930 UTC through 1330 UTC. So nice big launch window there. Yeah, and that, of hour. course, is launching from the Satish Dhawan Space Center, as it always does. So good luck with that one. Yeah. And then finally, uh, we have something coming back down the opposite direction. So uh, that is um, the Northrop Grumman Cygnus. Uh, this is the most recent one that was launched two months ago at CRS-14. Um, and it's uh, coming back from the International Space Station. The uh, release is scheduled on December 16th at 10.35 a.m. Eastern Time. And the coverage begins just shortly before that at 10.15 a.m. Eastern Time. All right. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. So then let's deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jiggies and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links or Orbital Podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at orbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's all. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.